we're, we're going to look at this morning just the, the incredible sacrifice that Jesus made in light of what we see here in the Old Testament. Um, and, and I think sometimes we need to repent because we have, we have such a backwards attitude on this so frequently. You know, we, we say things, and I've said things like, man, if only I could have been alive to see the sea parted. If only I could have been alive to see the fish and loaves multiplied. If only I could have, like, man, those people in the Bible, they were so lucky that they got to see all this. If only I could have lived back then. And I have to imagine that the people in the Bible would look at our lives and be like, are you kidding me? You get to live in a time where you can approach the throne of God anytime you want because your debt has been paid in full. There's not a chance that I wouldn't want to see that. And I think sometimes we just, we just get it backwards. And we're looking at if only I could have been alive back then. And it's, man, we, we get to approach the throne of God anytime we want. And I say I'm too busy for it. I'm saying I have better things to do. Man, just... That song, that song is, we're going to send that out. You need to re-listen to it. I need to re-listen to it regularly this week. But we're in Joshua 3. Uh, all right, I think I can speak now. We're in, we're in Joshua 3. We're going to be in the first four verses. Um, actually, we'll, we'll be in the first six, but we're really going to focus on the first four. And so if you will, just read along or, or listen. But this is Joshua 3, starting in verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried out by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length, do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and they went before the people. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for everything about who you are. We thank you for just the infinite, infinite nature of your holiness, the perfection of your holiness. We thank you for the infinite nature of your mercy and your compassion and your grace and your kindness, for your wisdom and your power. Lord, we praise you for being these things. As we continue to worship, as we continue to study your word, God, may the the weight and the significance of this never escape us. May we never take opening your word to hear from you lightly or treat it casually. May this never be just one more thing that we do to check off the box of a good Christian. Father, impress upon us that just the weight of studying your word. May we do so with the reverence and heart of worship that you deserve. May this be a continuation of our worship and celebration of who you are as we submit to you. God, we submit to you. We want to walk in step with the Spirit. We want to look like Jesus. We are incapable of doing that on our own. 
but through you, we can. So lead us, Lord. Lead us in this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first thing I want to look at, I want to look at, so we read the first six verses. I want to reread verses three and four. If we consider verses three and four especially, as soon as Joshua commanded, or the officers rather, remember last week we talked about shared leadership, the officers went through the people and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. And I want to look at the second half of the, I want to look at verse 4, and then we're going to go back up and look at verse 3. But in verse 4, he says, do not come near it, listen to this phrase, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. One of the themes that we've talked about in Joshua is that Joshua goes before his people, or Joshua, oh my goodness, don't listen to that part. God goes before his people. God goes before his people. He, he sets the path for his people. He sets the standard for his people. He equips his people. And so within that, as part of his plan, God is not, God is not playing a trick on us. God is not sending his people out to wander aimlessly and directionlessly. And it says, it says, follow the Ark of the Covenant so that you may know the way you are to go. And this is a theme that we've seen already in the life of Israel. Consider these passages. We're going to be entirely in Genesis, or I can't say entirely. We're going to be mostly in Genesis, one verse in Exodus. Listen to these verses. Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Genesis 26, 2. And the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Genesis 35, 1, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Exodus 3, 8, And I, the Lord, have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land. And I know sometimes when we talk about an idea, and I, and I what have I said, I always want to go back to Scripture. I want to pack as much Scripture into this as possible so it's not my words, it's God's words. And I know sometimes when we do this, we try and look at Old Testament and then we skip forward, you know, maybe seven books and look at later in the Old Testament and then we skip to the New Testament. But this, I deliberately wanted to go generation through generation in Genesis. I mean, think about that. Abram, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, and now the people of Israel. What do we see? What do we see that is so absolutely inherently true of who God is? That he is generationally faithful to lead his people. He doesn't say to Abram, hey, head out in that direction, and I hope you figure out when you need to stop. He doesn't then one generation later say to Isaac, hey, you know, go that way, and maybe you'll guess where you need to be. He doesn't say to Jacob, hey, head out in that general direction, and good luck trying to guess where you need to be. Hey, Israel, I'm going to get you out of Egypt, and then you're on your own. No, he says, Abram, go to the land that I will show you. Isaac, go to the place that I will lead you. Jacob, here is where you are to go. Here is where you are to dwell. Israel, I will take you out of Egypt and I will lead you to your destination. Generationally, God demonstrates his faithfulness to lead his people. And the reason this is so vital for us today is because this serves as such a powerful check when the enemy tries to tell us that God has abandoned us. 
This serves as such a powerful reminder that God has not left us directionless today. The people, they come to the promised land. They cross, they're getting ready to cross the Jordan. And it's not, okay, cross the Jordan and figure it out. It's, no, no, God is going to lead you across the Jordan. God is going to lead you through the promised land. So we have to ask ourselves today, when you consider this overwhelming evidence, and I mean, we could have kept going. We could have kept going through generations where God leads his people, where he takes them where they are to go. But hopefully that glimpse is enough to whet your appetite and you're going to go and look for more generational evidence in the Old Testament. But the point of this, the point of that generational reminder is I want you to ask yourselves, when the enemy tries to whisper to you that God has left you directionless, and maybe he hasn't given you the end destination just yet. No, note the difference in some of those verses. To Jacob, in Genesis 35, God said, hey, Jacob, go to this specific destination. To Abram and to Isaac, he said, go where I'll show you. So this isn't saying that God gives you all the details up front. This isn't saying that he gives you all the answers right away. Sometimes he may say to you, like he said to Abram, go from here in that direction. I'll show you where you're going. Isaac, don't go to Egypt. Don't go in that direction. Go in this other direction. I'll tell you when you're, when you're where you need to be. But the question we have to ask ourselves, when the enemy tries to tell us, when the enemy tries to whisper in our ear that God has left you directionless, ask yourself, am I really the first generation that he's unfaithful to? This is who God is. I mean, God... Abram, Isaac, Jacob, Israel in Egypt, Israel out of Egypt, Israel into the promised land. I will show you. I will lead you. And if that's who God was, that's who God is today. Because God does not change. And so even in this, before they even cross the river, as the people command, or as the officers command of the people, go after the Ark of the Covenant, it will show you the way that you are to go because you don't know it. There's humility in that. There's humility in saying, yeah, I, I don't know it. I don't have the omniscience of God. So I need to submit to his leadership in everything. And this is what it starts for the people of Israel. Go in that direction. Follow the Ark of the Covenant because you don't know the way that you are to go. But you're not abandoned in that. The call is to follow God. And then what's the second half of that? He says, you don't know which way you are to go because you have not passed this way before. You haven't been in this land. You haven't been in this territory. You haven't done these things. See, following God involves change. It's absolute folly to think that I can follow God and there will be no change in my life. Maybe it's geographic change. I mean, maybe it is literal geographic change. Maybe it's emotional change. Maybe it's financial change. Maybe it's the way I spend my time. Maybe the way I spend my time has to change. But either way, following God, you, need, you don't know the way you are to go because you have not been here before. What's he saying? I'm taking you somewhere new. I'm taking you somewhere that's foreign to you. I'm taking you somewhere that you haven't already spent decades familiarizing yourself with. I'm doing something new, so follow me. This is, again, true of God and his relationship to his people throughout Scripture. Consider these passages, starting in Isaiah 43. This is Isaiah 43, 16 through 19. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. 
What's that referencing? The Exodus, right? Exodus from Egypt. I made a way in the sea. I took what was wet. I took what was covered with water. And I removed the water and gave you dry ground. He makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Whoa, what a great, I mean, the people are here in Isaiah and they're like, yeah, that's right. That's what God did. He made a way in the sea. He quenched the armies. This is awesome. He's going to do that exact same thing again. And then God goes on to say, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The exact geographic topographical opposite of what I did before. You get all excited about before when I made a way through the waters and you're like, God, make a way through the waters again. And he says, no, no, Israel, I'm doing something new. I am going to make water through the desert. I'm doing something new. Do you not recognize it? Stop asking about the former things because I'm doing something new. I'm taking you where you have not been before. But it's okay because you can follow me in that. That's in Isaiah. Consider Habakkuk. Habakkuk 1.5. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For, am I, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And this is in direct response. The context of, remember, what is, what is key? Context, 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 context. So the context of Habakkuk 1. Habakkuk is a book of seven complaints. Habakkuk gives seven complaints, seven accusations at times against God. In this first one, the first complaint of Habakkuk is Habakkuk says, he says, God, where are you? You're not here. Look at the world around us. Look at the trouble around us. Look at the chaos around us. Look at what is being inflicted on your people by the world around them. God, why aren't you present? The American church has spent a lot of the last 10 years sounding a lot like Habakkuk in chapter 1. God, look at what's going around. You can't possibly be paying attention, God. Because if you were, you wouldn't have allowed these laws to pass. You wouldn't have allowed this to happen. Where are you, God? Why aren't you here? And how does God respond to Habakkuk? He says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. God does new things. The question is not, God, why won't you do what you used to? But it's, Lord, give me the wisdom to see what you're doing now. Give me the courage to join in that. Consider Haggai, Haggai 2, 6 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Listen to verse 9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. We want to question God's presence. We want to question God's directions. We want to question what's going on in the world around us. Because our view is backwards. 
because we're looking at what he's done in the past and we're saying, why aren't you working in that exact same way today? I don't want to change. I don't want to change my behavior. I'm very comfortable with how I spend my 24 hours in a day. I don't want to change that. I'm very comfortable with how I spend my money. I don't want to change that. I'm very comfortable with how I spend my time. I don't want to change that. This system worked for me 20 years ago, God. Why won't you do what you were doing back then? And in Joshua, God tells the people, follow me because I'm taking you somewhere you haven't been before. In Isaiah, God says, hey, pay attention because I'm doing something new that I haven't done before. In Habakkuk, God says, hey, don't ask that question because I'm doing something new that I haven't done before. In Haggai, God says, hey, you need to wake up. I'm doing something new that I haven't done before. And that's why it goes back to that first half of the phrase, it is essential that we follow God. Because he's taking us to places we haven't been before. What would you rather do? Mike, have you ever been to uh, Edinburgh, Edinburgh, Scotland? Okay, I have. Very blessed, very, very fortunate, very grateful. I've been able to go several times. Would you rather navigate the city on your own? Or would you rather I go with you and I say, hey, here are the best places to eat. Don't go there, that's a tour. Like, you don't need to see that. You need to see this instead. What would be more enjoyable for you? What would be less stressful for you? With me. Why? Because I know what's going on there. Where would you guys rather go? Or what would you rather do going into somewhere new you haven't been before? Would you rather strike out on your own? Or would you rather follow God? Would you rather say, man, I haven't, I haven't used my money like this before. I haven't used my time like this before. I haven't, I haven't rescheduled my day to spend more time with you like this before. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it on my own. Or would you rather say, okay, God, this is where you're leading? Then I'll follow. Uh, for me personally, 10 times out of 10 times, I'm going to choose to follow the omniscient, omnipotent God, even if it's into somewhere new. Because guess what? The people of Israel, think about it. They were familiar with the land on it. This is the River Jordan. They were familiar with over here. I've been living here. I know where to find food. I know where to find water. I know my tent's already set up. It's a nice spot. I picked out a very flat patch of grass. I've got a nice little hill that I use as a pillow. This is good over here. Where was God? God was on that side of the River Jordan. God was moving in that direction. So it might be more comfortable to stay over here. It might be easier to stay. I don't have to uproot my tent. I don't have to uproot my family. I don't have to think about my flocks. Economically, socially, emotionally, relationally, it's easy over here. God says, okay, that, that's great, but I'm going across the River Jordan. So the question then is, what side do you want to be on? Me? I'm going to choose to follow God into somewhere I haven't been before because that's where he's going. Following God is absolutely about change. As he takes you deeper, he demonstrates this to the people of Israel here in Joshua. But he promises them, look, I'm going before you because I know the way. I know where I'm trying to take you, so follow me. It's incredible to look at this example as he says, I will show you the way because you haven't been there before. What a beautiful promise. I removed so much of the uncertainty. 
okay, God's going to take me somewhere new, but he's leading me. All right, let's do it. That, that sounds like a worthwhile adventure. That sounds like a meaningful life. And that's why I love verse 4 in Joshua chapter 3. But then let's back up a little bit. I want to consider the, the significance. If you back up to, to verse 3, what does he say? He says, you shall follow it, it being the Ark of the Covenant. And this is no small thing. This is not an insignificant detail. And so I want to spend some time and I want to really look at the Ark of the Covenant because this is building towards, remember, what have we said that Scripture must always be about? Scripture is always about Jesus. We have to approach it looking for Jesus because Jesus says, everything that was written, the law and the prophets are about me. You say you want to know me. You say you know the Scriptures, but you clearly don't because the Scriptures are about me. And so before we look for Jesus, let's look and make sure we understand the significance, the weight of the Ark of the Covenant. What was the Ark of the Covenant for God's people, for the people of Israel? It was his throne. Exodus 25, 21 through 22. And you shall put, this is God giving instructions on the Ark of the Covenant. You shall put the mercy seat on the top of the Ark. And in the Ark, you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. Once again, God doesn't say, you shall put the testimony that I'm leaving you to figure out on your own. I'm going to give you the testimony. You put it in the Ark of the Covenant. In the Ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you. Mercy seat, that phrase, those words we've translated mercy seat, it literally means place of atonement. So the Ark of the Covenant was God's throne where he manifested himself to receive, to accept atonement for the people, for the people's sins. Exodus 26, 33 through 34. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the Ark of the Testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the Ark of the Testimony in the most holy place. Why is this a big deal? Why is that separation a big deal? Because it reminds us of how serious God is about his holiness. And let me tell you something, church. If God is serious about his holiness, then you and I better be serious about his holiness. Leviticus 16.2 And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. See, back in the Old Testament... They couldn't just go into the most holy place before the presence of God whenever they wanted. Now, there's a purification process. And God says, if you don't get this right, you will die. If you come into my holiness without proper purification, you will die. Is he exaggerating? Is he speaking, you know, kind of metaphorically, hyperbolically? Well, in Leviticus 10, two priests offered incense that was not prescribed by God. They came into the holy place improperly and they died. Uzziah reached out and made physical contact with the Ark of the, whole, uh, Ark of the Covenant without being purified and he died. God is saying, look, you come into my presence without purification, you die. This is how serious my holiness is. This is the weight of my holiness. You can't engage with this unless you have been purified. Leviticus 16.2, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. 1 Kings 8, 
the whole chapter of 1 Kings 8, but I want to focus on verses 6 and then 10 and 11. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. And when the priests came out, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. When God's glory filled the temple, the priests couldn't even be in its presence because of the weight of God's glory. That's why, and this is, you know, at times we have to talk about, I'm going to call it what it is. We have to talk about heresy in the modern church. And one of the things in the modern church is, oh, we'll summon the glory of God. We'll summon a glory cloud. We'll summon, you know, we through our actions. We can, we can fill this place with the glory of God. Let me tell you something. If the glory of God literally filled this place, your response would not be, oh, dude, I'm going to get a cell phone video. That's, that's blasphemy. If I stand before you and say, I can summon the glory of God, and when it gets here, take my picture with it, that's not the glory of God. The glory of God fills the temple, and the priests couldn't stand to minister. And beyond that, the Ark of the Covenant was God's presence with his people. It was his leading them. Numbers 10, 33, 35 through 36. So they set out from the Mount of the Lord three days' journey. And the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. And whenever the Ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. And again, here in Joshua, we see that the Ark of the Covenant goes out. God leads the way, and the people follow. So the Ark of the Covenant is of incredible significance to God's people for what it represents. I mean, this, this is representing his atonement. This is where he receives atonement. This is where he speaks to Moses, to the leaders of Israel. This is how he leads his people. This is how he rests with his people. This is a massive, massive deal. Okay, so now we have a better understanding of the weight of this, when God says, follow the Ark of the Covenant, how does this point to Jesus? Because consider what Jesus perfected. What well, we just looked at, the Ark of the Covenant, all the rituals that God prescribed, this is how a priest purifies himself to enter into the most holy place, to come before the Ark of the Covenant, to come before the mercy seat, the throne of atonement, this is what you must do just to be able to approach this. God lays all of this out. And this is what the people had to do time and time again. This is what the high priest had to do time and time again. Every time he was to enter the most holy place and approach the, the Ark of the Covenant, he had to go through this purification ritual. This is how serious God takes his holiness. And then Jesus comes. Mark 15, 37 through 38 what do we read in Exodus 26? God prescribing the temple layout. You shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in here within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. Mark 15, 37 through 38. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
Leviticus 17.11, let's go back to the Old Testament to look at part of atonement. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you, or given it for you on the altar, to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Ephesians 1.7, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. The throne of atonement required blood. Jesus provided that perfect blood. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, I mean confidence, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. You know one of the things they did with the high priest when he entered the most holy place? They tied a rope with bells around his ankle because there was still a chance that he was going to die. They weren't confident that the priest entering the most high place was going to walk back out. But they knew that we don't get to go in there and retrieve the body, so we're going to have to pull his body out. That's not confidence. Jesus comes. Jesus dies. Jesus resurrects to life. And God says, since you have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is what Jesus has done for us. I mean, it's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Because here, here's the thing. God's holiness did not change. When Jesus came, it's not like God's holiness went from 100 down to 50. And so now I can go before God's throne. Now I can go before the mercy seat. Now I can go before the throne of atonement because God lowered his standard of holiness. No, I can... I can approach the mercy seat. I can approach the throne of atonement. I can find forgiveness and grace when I need it because Jesus has purified me perfectly. God, that doesn't get an amen. amen. Jesus has per perfectly purified you. Wake up! God's holiness standards have not changed. Jesus has perfectly purified us. Everything that the Ark of the Covenant represented to the people of Israel, Jesus has perfected and completed. And so now you and I can approach the mercy seat. We can approach God on his throne. I mean, the mercy seat was where he spoke to his people. Do you know what the people of Israel would have done, would have given to be able to enter into that conversation with God? but they knew they couldn't. You and I can. You don't have to be a pastor to go before the throne of God. You don't have to direct a ministry to have access to the mercy seat. Jesus has purified you and given you that access perfectly. It's incredible. I mean, this should drive us to our knees every moment of our lives. And instead we say, God, if I have time, maybe I'll squeeze in a quick visit to your mercy seat, you know, before I fall asleep tonight. I'll see if I can fit you into my schedule. I'll see if I can fit in the throne of atonement. 
into my schedule. Well, not today. I'll get to you tomorrow, God. Man, I, I, guys, we got we to gotta, we gotta do better. And it begins with recognizing what Jesus has done for us. Right? What did it say? It says in Hebrews that the curtain, he, told, he opened the curtain. It doesn't say you and I opened the curtain. I think you're a favorite pastor. You got him in mind? He didn't open the curtain. I think you're your favorite evangelist. He didn't open the curtain. Your favorite author, they didn't open the curtain. The most influential person in your life didn't open the curtain. Jesus opened the curtain. How can my life be anything other than an entirely set, devoted sacrifice to him? Jesus held nothing back from me. Jesus held nothing back from you. Jesus wasn't keeping a reserve in his back pocket just to know. Jesus opened the curtain for you. Jesus perfectly purified you. How dare I say, well, I'm going to hold a little bit back. Because what you're asking, God, just is a little bit too much in light of what Jesus did. The ark went before the people. God led his people. Follow the ark of the covenant because you don't know the way you're going because you haven't been here before. What about Jesus? When Jesus called his disciples, he said, follow me. He didn't say, hey, you head in that direction. I'll meet up with you later. He said, no, follow me. This is where you are. You're on this side of the Jordan. You're hanging out here in your fishing boats. You're hanging out here under the tree, under the fig tree. Follow me. This is what I'm calling you to. He also told his disciples, I go before you to prepare a place for you. Hebrews 2, 17 through 18 and for, uh, Hebrews 4, 15. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I can't go to Jesus. He can't relate. Oh, the Bible says otherwise. The Bible says he went before you. He suffered before you so that he can help those who are being tempted. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect... Oh, Jesus wasn't tempted like I was. Bible says opposite. Bible says otherwise. Bible says one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted physically, emotionally, mentally. In every respect, Jesus was tempted as we are, yet without sin. We have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us, who has gone before us, who leads us, who doesn't leave us to figure it out on our own, who doesn't say, hey, I hope you get it figured out. He simply says, follow me. And then he takes us into new places. And once again, Hebrews 2, 17 through 18, 4, 15. This is the high priest we have, the high priest who is able to sympathize with us, the high priest who has gone before us, the high priest who has suffered before us. This is who Jesus is. Hebrews 4, 16, the very follow-up thought in light of that, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. Psalm 23 which we spent eight weeks studying. So I'm going to ask you to remember last January and February, and I expect you're all doing it perfectly. 
Psalm 23, He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. He leads me, He leads me, He leads me. He leads me through places I probably wouldn't choose to go on my own. Right? Hey, what are you doing for vacation? Oh, we're going to go through the valley of the shadow of death. It'll be great. Might stop in the middle, take some selfies, have a picnic. Jesus leads, Jesus leads, Jesus leads. That last phrase, he prepares a table before me. You remember when we studied this passage, specifically in the sermon, we looked at, he prepares a plateau before me. How shepherds in that day, that David wrote this in the context of being a shepherd, was the shepherd would literally, literally physically go before the flock and prepare the end destination so that he could lead them there where they didn't know. The flock didn't know where they were going, but the shepherd did because he'd been there before. The flock wasn't sure what would await them, but the shepherd knew because he had gone there before to prepare it for them. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. So as we look at Joshua 3, as I look at these first four verses in Joshua 3, yeah, we're going to look at a really, I mean, just one of those really cool moments in the Bible when the River Jordan is stopped. Right? Just one of those things where you're like, wow, God's powerful. But when I look at these first four verses, the overwhelming takeaway is, I can't believe what Jesus has done for me. The atonement that he has paid, the curtain that he has opened, the throne of mercy that he has made accessible, the leadership he provides, the change he wants to see in my life, the newness that he calls me to. This is unbelievable what God has done, who Jesus is in my life. This is what I see when I read through Joshua 3. And for the challenge this week, I really want us to just consider the weight of that. I want us to consider that what I just said, that I can't believe who Jesus is and what he's done. That's what I really want us to consider for this week's challenge. So read Leviticus 16 in Hebrews 9. And in Leviticus 16, you're going to see the details of what the high priest had to do to approach God's throne. In Leviticus 16, you're going to see what the high priest had to go through to be able to come before the mercy seat. You're going to see what God's holiness required of the high priest just to be able to approach him on his throne. And then in Hebrews 9, and read Hebrews 10 and 11 too, you're going to see what Jesus has done. And I want you to consider all that the high priest had to go through in Leviticus 16. And then I want you to consider that that was for one person. Jesus took that away because he did it perfectly. He didn't lessen God's holiness. God didn't lessen his own holiness. God didn't change the standards of holiness. God perfectly purified us so that we can approach the throne of grace through Jesus. So read these two chapters and then just, I mean, meditate on them, right? When God's word says to meditate on his word, it's to spend time with it, to chew on it, to sit with it, to listen to it. So spend time. This isn't a race. It's not, I'm going to read this as fast as I can. I'm done by 12.05 on Sunday afternoon. I beat all the rest of you. 
Meditate on these two chapters. And then the prayer, I, I really don't have any suggestions. Sometimes I give you suggestions or specific prayer points. Just pray in response to these two chapters. As you read these two and you consider what Jesus has done for us, let your prayer be born out of a response to that. So maybe it's a prayer of gratitude. Maybe it's a prayer of repentance, right? Maybe it's a prayer of, Lord, thank you for what you've done through Jesus. And we just pour our hearts out in gratitude. Maybe it's a, Lord, forgive me for when I take this lightly. Forgive me for when I dismiss this. Just, just pray in response to these two chapters. But as we read through Joshua, as we study Joshua, as we look at this example of the Lord saying to his people, head out across the river Jordan, but follow the Ark of the Covenant because you don't know the way you're to go because you haven't been here before. Maybe the church needs to ask ourselves, okay, am I not following God because I assume I know the way? Or does it feel like I'm missing what God is doing because I'm firmly trying to stay where I've already been? and I'm resistant to going anywhere new. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you go before us, that you don't leave us to our own wisdom, which my wisdom, you can't even call it my wisdom. Thank you that you know where you are taking us. Forgive us for when we're resistant to that. Teach us how to submit to your leadership. Teach us how to follow as you take us where we haven't been before. Guard our hearts from asking those questions of where are you? Why aren't you here? Why aren't you moving? Guard our hearts from asking why were the former days better than these days? Lord, remind us of who you are and how great you are. And Lord, just put a holy zeal on our hearts to live in response to who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.